Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington, the Gray Center's Research Director. Joining me today is Adam White, as always, Co-Executive Director of the Center. Hi, Adam. Hey, Jace. Great to be back. Today, we're also joined by Boston University law professor Jed Handelsman Sugarman. Jed recently wrote an article for the Cato Supreme Court Review analyzing one of the student loan cases from the end of the last Supreme Court term. He wrote about different conceptions of the major questions doctrine, when states should have standing, and how to approach emergency powers. He presented the paper as part of a Gray Center Research Roundtable we hosted last fall, and you can find his article on our website or by clicking the link in our show notes. Jed, welcome to Gray Matters. Great. Thank you so much for having me. So your article is called Biden v. Nebraska, the new state standing in the old purposive major questions doctrine. For those who haven't seen it yet, can you give us a brief summary? Well, sure. In fact, it, it started as, an, as a, an amicus brief, and that amicus brief started as a, an op-ed um, about the Biden student debt waiver program. And that op-ed came out of years, and this is the maybe the background here, um, I have been concerned with and troubled by the expansion of executive power, um, especially with executive powers during emergencies and the use and abuse of executive powers over emergencies. Um, and I've had that concern about um, administrations on both sides uh, of the political aisle. Uh, and I then spent a lot of time during the Trump years uh, raising concerns about the use and abuse of presidential powers and and uh, President Trump's uh, um, in my view, not it, this was not a new issue, but it was a an expansion of an old issue that goes back decades. Um, okay, and so so I'm concerned about how Congress has legislated on emergencies. They have given way too much breadth uh, and, and lack of clarity. Uh, sort of signing over with a, a, a long once once an emergency is declared, it gives presidents way too much power, way too much latitude for way too long a period of time. So that's a long-standing problem. And lots of people on the left and the right have been um, have been balanced in identifying this problem. So then after complaining about this during the Trump years, lo and behold, you know, I'd like uh, I'd like uh, uh, the, the presidency that were with can- a candidate who ran on a rule of law platform talking about limiting executive power. Lo and behold, there's been a um, there was a campaign about Biden student debt, you know, that the canceling student debt, they couldn't get it through Congress. Um, and so in the summer of 2022, um, there was a, an announcement in, in August at that time that um, after there had been much question, there had been uh, some debates about whether uh, there would be another basis, whether the Biden administration would waive this on the basis of something called the Higher Education Act of 1965. Turns out many people thought this would be the basis. They didn't use that. Instead, the Biden administration announced that they would be relying on the HEROES Act of 2003, which was enacted post 9-11, and it was enacted in the context, uh, it had provisions about emergencies. And this was the emergency hook for the Biden administration was COVID-19. Now, just so I know that we're, we hope that COVID is over, COVID's still going around, COVID's not going to be over, but, but it's important to remember what stage of COVID that happened in. This was, you know, the summer of 2022, late summer 2022, um, there had, the feeling was that COVID, that COVID was mostly in the rear view, rear view mirror, or at least the side view mirror. Um, and, 
I was immediately struck by how this was clearly a pretextual use of a an emergency power tied to COVID uh, when it was really a long-term policy goal that they couldn't get through Congress. Okay. So that, and then I, after, you know, covering this issue and digging into it a little bit, I wrote an op-ed and the title of the op-ed um, in the Atlantic was uh, the Biden student debt uh, waiver is a legal mess. Subtitle, but the good news is there's still time to fix it. So just to say, like, I am sympathetic to ways of addressing this problem. I think it's better if Congress deals with it. And at the time, I thought that there was another statute that would fix it. Side note, I'm not, I don't think that's as clear, but like, you know, that I don't want to go down that digression. But um, so I wrote that point about the abuse of executive power um, uh, that uh, turns out didn't sway anybody or didn't sway the administration. They went out and and then promulgated it. In the meantime, Biden went and said some things that made it even clearer that it was a pretext. He said things like on 60 Minutes a month later, um, uh, uh, COVID is, uh, uh, COVID's over. You know, the pandemic is over. So it's strange that you'd be using right, the, the conflict um, in what the, edu- you know, the left hand at the education department was not following what the right hand of the political operations was saying. So um, I wound up writing an amicus brief uh, on the side of, against my policy preference of having more student debt waiver in favor of a principled commitment to limits on executive power. So let me just say very briefly uh, what the main argument there is. The main argument is in favor of uh, a, a version of the major questions doctrine. And that version is is a solution to this problem. And I, in, I call it in, in a paper, uh, in the paper that f- with Cato, um, a, 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 an approach is that this could be an emergency questions doctrine. So just to pause on this for a second, I have been supportive of the major questions doctrine. And I've been sort of, you know, not marching with the, uh, uh, you know, I think there's a bit of orthodoxy on the left about this, that the major questions doctrine is suddenly problematic. It was not a problem when it was most robustly developed in the case that uh, saved a significant part of the uh, ACA, the Affordable Care Act, uh, uh, otherwise known as Obamacare. So let me just, from those cases, let me just articulate that I have three cheers for the major question doctrine. The problem is that there are four questions. And so uh, three out of four. What are those steps? And then I'll explain how that relates to emergencies. The first step is that uh, the major questions doctrine is an exception that uh, 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 that gets past Chevron. And I'm all on board with that, right? I, I think Chevron was wrongly decided at the time. Uh, and I'm looking forward. I'm hoping that the Supreme Court overturns Chevron. And I say that from the left. Uh, okay. Um, number two, uh, uh, the major questions doctrine has been applied in a purposive way. Hence, this is the, the. I think this also happens in this case. Um, so that, for, so for example, the ACA case on the major questions doctrine. Um, how, how did uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts get around the problem that the word "state" didn't mean "state" but meant "federal"? He did a lot of gymnastics to uh, that relied on the purposes of the bill. Um, I used to think that it was a persuasive opinion. I'm not so sure anymore. Um, but nevertheless, I liked the uh, emphasis on purposes rather than narrow textualism. Okay. Number three, no elephants out of mouse holes, right? Um, if it's a, uh, uh, Congress has to delegate in order for big things to, in order to, um, 
make big policy to give the, um, the legitimacy for the um, administration to make big policy decisions. So, for example, no pulling student debt waiver out of a um, uh, on the basis of COVID, right? That's a, I mean, it may be that an emergency provision is a large hole, but it's got to fit the hole. So the idea of a fit. And, and no pretext. So, um, so that was point number three, and and I, I tried to apply that here to say the major question doctrine by using you know by not defer by no Chevron deference, not deferring to the administration, and using purposes to understand, for example, an emergency provision so that you're applying it in the right shape. Um, and then allowing uh, from purposes and not allowing um, uh, allowing uh, uses, but not abuses like pulling elephants out of mouse holes. That would set an appropriate but practical limit on um, the abuse of emergency powers, while still letting administrations uh, respond to emergencies in ways that are necessary. So those are the three things I'm on board with. I, let me pause here, and I'll save the problem for later in this conversation. Well, I was going to ask, what is the problem with then how Roberts handled the student debt cancellation in Biden v. Nebraska? Right. So that so in a, up until about two years ago, the, this fit my explanation or, or my steps fit. I think there was another brewing argument that was often in concurrences like Gorsuch. Right. So there's another theory for the major question doctrine, which is and I'm increasingly sympathetic to this, by the way. Um, uh, I'm not sure I'm fully persuaded, but that it's a clear statement rule against non-delegation. It's a substantive canon. Um, and so on the one hand, I, I'm on board with the problem of pulling elephants out of mouse holes and you need, Congress has to have delegated and it can delegate things broadly. That then begs the question, right? No elephants out of mouse holes begs the antecedent question, can Congress build elephant holes? Can Congress build elephant holes? That's a, that's my metaphor for um, the non-delegation problem. Can Congress draft uh, broad, ambiguous dele uh, uh, delegations to agencies? And I think I think that Congress can broadly delegate. Um, Gorsuch does not think so, and that because it raises a non-delegation problem that the that this is Congress taking its using legislation to delegate to agencies legislative power too broad. Um, and so that that problem in two cases, the West West Virginia versus EPA, and in this case, Biden versus Nebraska, basically said you can't build uh, we're going you have to have a clear statement, a super clear statement of a super clear policy, and it can't be you uh, you basically can't build elephant holes anymore. You can make an elephant. Right. Um, but you have to actually specify the elephant. And so that super clear statement rule uh, is at least something that I'd want to and I'm raising a concern about, especially, Jace, because if we think that in the tw in, in the you know that the Constitution is not a suicide pact, we need to be able to respond to emergencies, whether they're national security emergencies or pandemics or earthquakes, natural disasters. Congress needs to delegate emergency powers with flexibility to respond to uh, because emergencies are foreseeable, but their exact parameters are not. So we need some breadth for emergency powers, but not so much breadth that presidents can be doing what they've been doing for decades, which is abusing that breath for their own policy or partisan preferences. 
Uh, Jed, am I, am I hearing you basically describe the major questions doctrine as, when I mean, you said a clear statement rule, but also a, a, a canon of constitutional avoidance, that this is the way the Supreme Court has avoided the, 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 the underlying non-delegation doctrine argument? Uh, is that right? And and also, what then do you make of Justice Barrett's concurrence, where she very, you know, energetically and explicitly says, no, 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 this is not those things. This is just a contextual interpretive tool. Right. So I, I think it's become clear uh, that, and, and, and some of the justices have said so, um, that this doctrine about, you know, no elephant holes, why can't, I mean, so what is the reason why Congress cannot draft uh delegations with breadth and uh and um ambiguity but still with an intelligible principle what what would be why why should there be a super clear statement rule um for specific delegations as opposed to you know broad delegations um uh, uh, uh that are still executive that still you know legislate and delegate Gap filling, right? That's the that's the modern structure of government. What would be the problem with that? Um, Gorsuch has been clear, um, and um, and it turns out Roberts, without saying so, I think applies that same. What's the basis for that super clear statement rule? It is a concern about uh, Congress delegating too broadly and ambiguously, yeah. and instead of using per, using text and context to achieve to for judges to do what textualists say that they should be doing or what purposivists say um read the statute and give the best reading that's the critique of chevron don't defer to the agency just be good textualists and or be good purposivists what happens in these cases is something else it's not giving the best reading for what congress intended or what congress wrote it's saying um we need super clarity even if the best reading is X, we need a thumb on the scale that we need this spelled out more clearly. Why would there be this super clear statement rule as opposed to just reading the text or reading the purposes? It's because there's a substantive commitment. And Gorsuch says this, the substantive commitment is a normative position about what Congress should be doing, regardless of what Congress did, right? That's why we need super clear statement. So, the reg- so okay, so just pause there, right? That is the only way to understand what Roberts did. He was unwilling to say or ex- give that explanation, um, but Gorsuch gave that explanation. Let me pause for a second and give one other explanation that was at your terrific conference where I presented this paper. Mike Ramsey also presented an argument um, that was um, raised by his paper, but he was even clear in his explanation about it, which is that. Um, uh, Justice Scalia also had this concern about the non-delegation doctrine. In Mistretta, a case about um, sentencing, the de- uh, uh, delegation of sentencing, um, uh, uh, Scalia says, because the non-delegation doctrine is especially hard to enforce, and it is especially hard to figure out what are the parameters of what delegate, what, you know, what an intelligible principle is, we should be careful um, and, um, and have second best ways of enforcing it. That was a preview of the major question doctrine. That in, was that was to, to make sure that justices don't get too far out on a, in a very complicated, fuzzy, and subjective doctrine, allow Congress to legislate, but have super clear statement rules for it. And that allows the, that, that would allow the court to, um, to enforce the non-delegation doctrine without striking down acts of Congress, right? So, okay. So I think that all makes sense. Amy Coney, Justice Barrett, 
is uh, it was trying to defend this as textualism. And frankly, her arguments are uh, are so unpersuasive that and they that they backfire and they confirm that the project is a is a substantive canon. Why? Um, first, um, what she winds up describing is not what Congress does. She basically says. Uh, there's a big assumption in her concurrence. Her, her, her big assumption is um, Congress doesn't delegate major questions. Congress wants to resolve major questions and decide them for themselves. And that's not a normative claim. If that's a normative claim, that's Gorsuch, right? Gorsuch says Congress should. That's a normative claim. If it's normative, that's the basis for a substantive canon. Substantively, co- Congress should decide major questions and recognizing that Congress sometimes doesn't, the courts need to hold the hold Congress to these normative constitutional commitments. I'm increasingly sympathetic to that. What I'm not sympathetic to is this descriptive claim that as a historian, I'm a legal historian first and foremost, and I, you know, I and others can, can pinpoint, um, you know, throughout American history, Congress actually punts all the time. Now, sometimes just it's a, as a descriptive matter, sometimes Congress Congress people like to make big decisions, and but but you know either as often or more often um, they don't want to face the fire for ma- having to make those big decisions, and this is part of the growth of the administrative state. Congress doesn't want to make hard decisions, so they create agencies and they give broad delegations to agencies to make tough decisions, not just the details, but even big decisions. Now, some people think that's great. Um, um, I don't like. I'm not. I you know. I I'm not a tear down the administrative state, but I teach administrative law too, and I raise these questions all the time. So so first of all, and, and I can go in and give you examples, but I'm just giving you uh, uh, the summary here. One is it is empirically not true um, the way that that uh, uh, Justice Barrett it's what she wants to believe it's true, but it's it's just his, his, it, historians have shown this over and over again that Congress punts big questions. Or often does. Um, number uh, and, and the second major point here is that then um, Justice Barrett claims that all they're doing is reading text. Text is not just the words on the page. You have to read it in context. And she winds up using these two examples um, that are uh, that backfire. Um, and briefly, uh, let me just you know I'll, I'll, I'll give I'll, I'll uh, recite these two examples. One is um, it, all that the courts are doing is trying to give the best reading. Now, super clear statements again are not the best reading, but she says, look, this is con- the context matters here. So if um, if a ba- if parents who are leaving their kids with a babysitter leave the house and they say, make sure the kids have a good time, um, that's that is ambiguous, but uh, but. Parents from, con- but a babysitter from context, though delegated with this choice, can still make a good reading of what their delegation has been. Now, the problem there is you don't get that from the text, right? Make sure the kids have a good time. You know, she's saying, well, clearly the a babysitter wouldn't like get in the car and go to Vegas, right? Like, uh, um, you know, just just for the Super Bowl or Taylor Swift, of course, right? Um, but you know, the babysitter would understand what that means in context. Well, sure, but that there's more specific context than just make sure the kids have a good time. Like, that's not there's not a genre. Like, the the argument isn't that oh, just because. Um, it's congressional legislation. That's enough context to tell you X that relies on the assumption that Congress only makes big, big decisions. My point is the way that a babysitter knows what's appropriate to make sure that the kids have a good time depends on social facts, the social context, like 
maybe um, the baby, maybe the family is Amish or Orthodox Jews, right? Uh, on a Friday night or not on a Friday night, right? Um, those are not, that's not the genre of babysitting, like the genre of legislating. That's from the particular social context and purposes of what the parents expect. Second example that she gives is that um, a grocery store owner tells a clerk, we need apples. Can you go buy some apples for the store? And she says, of course, if you just look at that text, that's not enough. But in context, you the, the clerk will know how many apples to buy. And my point is that that's not a genre question. That's social. Uh, the clerk knows how many apples to buy, whether it's a, I don't know, a Whole Foods. Uh, you know, is this a clerk ordering apples for a Whole Foods, in which case hundreds of apples might, or dozens and dozens of apples would be appropriate. Is it a bodega or a corner market or, you know, a, a, a CVS, in which case no more than a dozen would be appropriate? Or is this the buyer for all of the, I don't know, Safeways or, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, on the East Coast, in which case thousands and thousands would be appropriate? There's no genre there that answers that question. It is the social facts and the social context of that uh, of that interaction that tells you that Amy Coney Barrett did not have textual examples she had to that what made sense of each of those examples is that the delegee right the babysitter or the clerk knows from a mix of text and context social context how to interpret language and it seems to me that that shows that um if her examples backfire that badly it shows that uh um she doesn't really have good arguments for why this is just textualism. Now, as a Gen Xer, I was mostly just disappointed that she talked about the babysitting examples and didn't drop a citation to Adventures in Babysitting. Um, <laughs> but is the upshot of that, are you saying that that Barrett chose the wrong examples to show how, how the Major Questions Doctrine is a contextual aspect to textualism, or are you saying it's just it's impossible to make the case, and well, that actually this is yeah. a this is this is and not just contextualism, but it's it's purpose out as your article's title suggests, it's just outright purposivism. Well, I think yeah, I think it's outright purposivism because it's not just about this one case. Um, in the article, I you know I, I I've given you the example before. That's how Roberts was able to ignore text. Right? This happens over and over again. Um, uh, so so again, Roberts used the major question before it was called the major question doctrine, but used it used the language of you know vast economic and political significance to say, hey, let's not. This isn't a reason to just get bogged down in a word like. There's a good reason to take a major question and think about purposes. I can say a little bit more about that, but I can give you another example of this, which is this famous um, predecessor to that case, which is called FDA versus Brown and Williamson. And in that case, um, the statute from 1934 about establishing food and drug regulation um, mentions uh, drugs and devices. And as a textual matter, um, tobacco is clearly a drug and a cigarette is clearly a device. So then if the FDA should be, as a textual matter, would have jurisdiction, should, should have to regulate tobacco and cigarettes, and then once it regulates, it has to ban them. Because under the statute, if it's not safe, there is no safe and effective cigarette. I mean, if it's... A, it, so, so that would lead to... You could say that's absurd. Well, I don't think it's absurd to say there were purposes, and that's what Congress did. It said this was a very big deal. Um, if Congress had meant to regulate you know, these kind, not just tobacco, but like recreational kinds of things like um, that, that language of text would apply, but not if you think about the context and social, social context and purposes. 
the reason why this, you know, so, so first of all, I'm describing the cases I can give you, you know, the paper gives more examples, but let me give an, another explanation for why purposivism makes sense for major questions. Um, even though I think Chevron should be overturned, there is an argument that Chevron is sort of judicial economy, right? The let the administrative state makes lots of small and mid-level decisions, and the courts are over could not possibly do all the work of doing its own reading of all of the text and context and expertise required. So it's a kind of a triage on small and mid-level things. We will delegate, you know, we delegate that to agencies. But if it's a big deal, then that it's worth the judicial investment, um, and and we triage so that we take care of the like in, in the OR, right? You triage to deal with major surgeries or major life threatening injuries, and you uh, and you deal with like run of the mill injuries elsewhere. So that's one point about why major questions you can do the deep dive into text and purposes, right? Because that's if it's a big deal. Um, and the second reason why is that if it's a major question of vast economic and political significance, judges are on a more equal footing with the agencies, right? I mean, this there's an assumption that if something is technical, agencies have comparative advantage on that mix of statutory interpretation and on the technical details. Um, but if it's a if it's something like the ACA Obamacare, if it's like tobacco, or if it's like student debt waiver, um, then the judges live through, often live through the statute passing, um, and or that it's a significant enough statute that a judge is on equal footing to understand the purposes of a statute with the agencies uh, themselves. So, so that's an argument for why purposes. Why, you know, why deference is not a solution, nor is textualism a good answer, because the text isn't enough either, right? That, and that's also how emergency powers get abused. Um, uh, if you just put emergency into a bill, that's an invitation to an agency or a president to just apply that emergency however they want, because the text says so. And frankly, that is why I was troubled by the three liberals on the court, in that they were giving a blank check, Um to uh, uh, presidential abuse of emergency powers. And frankly, I was troubled that after four years of the, of the liberals siding against the Trump administration and, and raising all kinds of questions about Trump's abuse of powers in, in, in cases like the census and in DACA, et cetera, that it, once the administration changed, then suddenly the three liberals are all on board with maximal executive discretion. This is a problem on both sides um, of the Supreme Court. And so looking for a rule that can be applied to any kind of administration, I want to go back to your point about elephant holes yeah. and just ask about textualism one more time. You said you're sympathetic to the idea that the Constitution has a kind of non-delegation rule idea embedded in it a little bit. So could textualists defend the major questions doctrine just saying they're applying the text of that higher law, Article 1, uh, rather than the plain meaning of a contrary statute so let me let me make sure i understand um the that what, what you're saying is they're being textualist but with regard to article one text and they're applying the article one text okay mm-hmm. so let me let me posit this and just um say that um i think i want to distinguish between textualism as an exercise of statutory interpretation versus originalism as a method of constitutional interpretation uh, I, I think there's a, it's important to distinguish these categories 
in ways that, uh, and it turns out, you know, many textualists are originalists and many originalists are textualists, but um, the Constitution is not a, a great document for textualism because as Chief Justice John Marshall said, um, the Constitution does not have the prolixity of a legal code in McCullough versus Maryland. Um, Chief Justice Marshall distinguished between constitutional interpretation and prolix legal codes because they're two different genres. Um, I'm about to, uh, 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 I have my, um, where's my, I have my Cato constitution, pocket constitution. The idea of a pocket constitution is, is in itself an example that the idea that you could put the constitution in your pocket, as opposed to the legal code that would stretch on all of my shelves behind me, it tells you that, um, Textualism makes sense when you can write in detail over many, you know, over over forty or fifty volumes of of a legal code. But the Constitution was meant to be read or even heard by and spoken out to we the people to ratify it. And then it was as 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 Marshall says, um, it's a Constitution we are expounding in in McCullough versus Maryland. To expound doesn't just mean interpret. I think he's saying like you have to. It's a jumping off point, right? Um, so, and the methods of originalism are not textualist because we turn to legislative history. We look at what happened in the drafting of it, in the convention. We look at ratification debates that give you context about what those words meant. So, okay. So, so what I'm saying here is I think this exercise is appropriately originalist and not textualist. If it were just textualist, the question would be, what did Congress mean to do? And you would be describing Congress with no values, right? With, without substantive commitments to it. If what is what I think is happening, and I, I'm sympathetic to this, is this is not a descriptive project. Amy Coney Barrett's wrong. Gorsuch is right. Um, this doesn't describe what Congress does. It's actually driven by the fact that Congress doesn't do it. Congress abdicates, and you know, uh, uh, Congress punts too much. So in order to enforce the Constitution, we should set aside what Congress does or what Congress wrote in favor of or, or having some um, substantive commitment or constitutional commitment to Article I's vesting clause. All legislative, just let me underscore that, all legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. That shall is a normative commitment. And so I, so Jace, what I'm saying is, this is originalism that starts with the text. And let me just pause for a second. And I've stumbled on, I wasn't looking for this argument, but I went into the, uh, into the databases and archives. And I found, I was surprised to find that there is a good text plus context argument for non-delegation. And it turns out that the word vesting by itself does not mean what we assume it means today, right? Like, a, uh, um, like you know, Princess Bride. I, I don't think that word means what you think it means, right? It's inconceivable that one could vest uh, uh, something without it, you know, being indefeasibly vested. Well, it turns out, you know, the word vesting, when I look back into the dictionaries and uses, um, didn't have a special legal legal significance unless other words were added to it. So. Lots of exa- George Washington would um, either be fully vested with something or would vest someone else with something, either fully vested or completely vested or all vested, or in other cases, temporarily vest or partially vest. So there are shades and flavors of vesting. Article two, the vesting clause says the executive power shall be vested in the president. Article three says the judicial power. Article one says all the legislative power here. And so all is more than the. 
The, and let's not assume that the means all, because first of all, if we're being, t- so Jace, there is a kind of textualism to originalism, which is words matter. Um, and, uh, um, but they use the word the all the time as like formal constitutional writing, like the, you know, the intellectual property or, you know, like, the, you know, the gets thrown around all the time without special meaning, but all means all. And, um, and so my argument in, a, in an article called Vesting is that if we're going to, and, and it turns out Gorsuch and Thomas make the same signal when they talk about non-delegation. They highlight it without this research, but they make a big deal about all. So, um, okay, so my, my bottom line is, Jace, I'm agreeing with this, but not as a textual matter, but as an originalist matter, there has to be a limit on le- that, that Congress legislates and agencies don't. The executive branch doesn't. And that makes sense of the major question doctrine. Maybe even I could be persuaded that it makes sense of question number four, um, that Congress can't enact elephant holes. That that is that that by that if Congress enacts elephant holes, it is giving its legislative power to the executive branch. And that means that not all legislative power would be vested in Congress. So we've talked a lot about Congress. Man, maybe this is a natural bridge to, to talking a bit about emergency powers more specifically. Sure. But taking off your historian hat and just putting on your hat of being a, a good citizen and a good observer of, of modern government and politics, how should Congress approach the question of, of legislating in advance of emergencies? So, so this is where I'm stuck, right? I mean, this, and I am, I've moved a little bit on this in that I'm more open to the idea that, um, that the only way to deal with this is, uh, for Congress to stop making references to emergencies and hoping that courts engage in purposivism. I think the bigger problem is that the pendulum has swung too far in this, in the, in the, uh, punting direction. Um, and it may be that it's not, I, I am now more sympathetic to the idea that it's not just purposes because purposes is too open-ended. You know, it's not just Chevron that is, that creates the problem. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, I think it's also the courts are too eager to stay out of the way of emergencies, right? They're too, uh, just like Congress punts. I think too often judges are willing to, you know, turn a blind eye to pretexts. Um, and so I, I think where I'm at now, I think this experience of watching this litigation um, is that, uh, and, and watching this issue come up again and again, is um, Congress should be doing its job, and 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 it's not and it's not crazy to think that um, there could be some latitude initially and in, during an emergency for the executive branch to move quickly, um, and and courts then to not enjoin them by giving Congress a chance to clarify, but this should be a short-term thing. Um, and like, and COVID's a good example of this. I mean, it didn't take that long or the, the crash of 2008. In both cases, Congress stepped in with some specificity in 2008 to create TARP um, within a few months of, the, of, of an economic uh, emergency. And it didn't take that long for Congress to enact its COVID, uh, its COVID uh, um, powers. And so maybe that's, so I'm, I'm increasingly um, sympathetic to this non-delegation argument or and the substantive canon of no mouse of no el- Congress cannot build mouse uh, elephant holes. It needs to make emergency elephants. Well, Jed, when you mentioned the pretext, and this has come up a couple times, I wonder. Um, well, let me put it this way: I'm about to. I'm going to tell you right now where you're headed with this. I know where you're going with this. Okay. Um, it's a purposes purpose purpose of purpose of is 
Purposivist. Purposivism. Purposivism. Purposivism, but not of Congress's purposes, but of President's purposes. You've written a lot over the years about faithful execution, um, really focused on uh, the the motivations and purposes of a president's actions. Um, you refer to pretexts, and and by the way, the one of the cases you mentioned earlier from the Trump years, the um, the uh, the census case, where right. the Supreme Court throw over you know overturns the Commerce Department's addition of the citizenship question to the census because they say the, the the Trump administration's explanation for it was really a per, was was a pretext. And I think the safety valve that you're looking for is a judicial review that actually takes presidential purposes seriously, actually judges those purposes, and asks, well, is the president faithfully executing the law or not? And by faithful, is it is he constrained by the law and searching for the best meaning of the law and, and trying to apply the law in a way that restrains himself? Or is he looking for legal texts as excuses and pretexts for the thing that he actually wants to do regardless of the law. I think that's the upshot of, 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 of the work that you've done when I bring it all together. I, and that was also part of my argument in the brief, and um, and I touched on it. I mean, I was more in the brief than in, the, you know, I was making a few different arguments in the brief, including, uh, we talk about state standing. I think it's also uh, uh, what happened in Biden versus Nebraska is the only way to get there was through state standing. And part of this idea, of, I mean, what connects all three issues is that each branch should be doing their job, right? Um, Article one, Congress Congress's job is to address major questions and and handle emergencies and legislate. Um, uh, Article two, the president shall be shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Um, That job means to be acting in good faith and not engaging in pretextual arguments like many presidents have done, not just Trump and not just Biden. Um, And in Article three, judges also faithfully act their job is to enforce the constitution so not to, to not use standing principles to make sure that you know their their whole clauses of the constitution that never get enforced like for example another topic i've worked on on the emoluments clause right um you know standing was a problem for enforcing constitutional principles and standing also becomes a problem for um uh, uh for for anyone being able to challenge the um the w- expenditure of money at ultra virus and so that's an argument for state standing. So, so I'm going to, I'm just trying to, you know, big picture connect this idea. The Constitution should not be a dead letter and there should be litigation around it. And faithful execution, this is an article I wrote with Ethan Lieb and Andrew Kent, um, was that it turns out, you know, I think there's an assumption that faithful execution was just sort of loose, hortatory language or vaguely religious. And, you know, you know, only God will judge one's faith. No, it turns out. Faithful execution had, had had not just some legal context, it went all the way back to the Magna Carta, and it was the notion that oaths had to be taken for uh, uh, in a time of, you know, executive discretion, and faithful execution was enforceable like a proto-fiduciary duty of care and of loyalty, and it was, and we found examples of that being uh, judiciable, justiciable, that judges weighed in on whether pe- whether officials were acting out of loyalty, care, and good faith. 
Okay. So, um, it's not an easy question, but, um, and, and I, I don't want to say like, you know, judges should be, you know, tr- administering lie detector tests, uh, to all officials about whether they're telling the truth or, um, you know, or, or, or that we sh- they should bring in juries, uh, or, or, or reality TV, you know, like, th- yeah, uh, um, American Idol, who do you think? Like, I, so I, I want to be careful about it, but in, in, in a border, in, in some extreme cases, it's clear that there's a pretext. Some some examples are like not just the student debt waiver and the contradictions that I was describing. Um, there's also the extreme example of um, the census question of whether uh, the the Trump administration was putting a citizenship question on the census in a case called uh, Commerce Department versus New York. Another example of states asserting their state standing, by the way. Um, and in that case, uh, it was going to go five to four in favor of the Trump administration until um, the guy, the the operative, the political operative who was behind this plan died, and his daughter, uh, his estranged daughter, went into his 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 office and went into the hard drive and found memos that showed that this had a partisan motivation. Is that the now? Does it rely upon such obvious cases of contradictions? Um, I would also have applied it. I'm very pro pro dreamer and pro immigration reform as a matter of statute. But I said at the time that um, the, that Congress that, that the Supreme Court should have looked at DACA and DAPA as um, uh, uh, um, as as basically legislation. Uh, a legislative visa program through uh, deferral, you know, through through dressed up as executive action, and if it walks like a legislative program, and if it quacks and talks like a visa program, um, it's not actually executive action. Um, and so, I thought faithful execution was a way to, um, uh, uh, even though I'm strongly supportive of it as a policy matter, you still have to go. You still can't overturn. You can't ignore the Immigration and Naturalization Act uh, uh, systematically. Um, with a with a with a mass waiver program, um, and so like I, I think those are examples of uh, making sure that judges enforce the Constitution and enforce Jace the text. Right, faithful execution is in the Constitution because it had legal, it has and had legal significance. Your mention of DACA also reminds me that Congress is debating immigration reform right now, and. Part of the package involves when the president shall declare an emergency after a certain level of people are coming across, only certain kinds of people at certain times, and it's narrow. Do some of the debates around this bill match with your plan for how emergency powers should be handled, or what are you thinking about all this? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give the answer that the members of Congress should be giving when they're talking about this bill is that it's uh, 400 pages long and, and it, they, they come in hot on, oh, this is, this is great or this is horrible. And then the follow-up question is, have you read it? And they say no. So with the caveat that I haven't read the bill from the, from the loose understanding, let me, the big picture thing is the Congress is doing what is doing its job if it passes this. This is what Congress should be doing about immigration policy. Instead, of, and and so the critique of what Biden or, or you know Biden or what Trump were doing was that they were trying to solve this problem by going either you know by by stretching statutes or going beyond them. For example, Trump's um, uh, appropriate use of money, reappropriated money by declaring a border emergency to then me- create an emergency 
exception for appropriations to to find money for the wall when Congress refused to do it. Okay, that that's a problem, right? So what's the solution? Well, it's you know, presidents are still going to have to do this if Congress doesn't do its job. So what are we? And as we're as we're recording this podcast, it sounds like there's going to be a filibuster. Uh, let me uh, uh, that that the Senate is even after Republican senators negotiated this. A compromise bill, um, there might be a filibuster, and and I want to raise this larger point about obstruction of Congress. Not 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 the not the January sixth prosecution for obstruction. I mean, po- you know, political obstructionism. There's a bit of a contradiction. Um, I, I've been I've been calling out the left for some of its contradiction and the right here, but here's a here's a fundamental contradiction um, or tension for those who believe in the non delegation doctrine or the major question doctrine. That the idea is that. Um, uh, it shouldn't be the agencies making big decisions. It, uh, Congress, it's not, you know, the executive branch should be executing, but Congress should be legislating. And on the one hand, right, that means that Congress has to be functional. On the other hand, it seems like a lot of those folks that are supportive of, you know, the uh, limits on delegation and Congress having to make these choices also just happen to be pretty supportive of, number one, um, paper filibusters instead of Mr. Smith goes to Washington, stand and deliver for 48 hours if you uh, and, and put your money where your mouth is in order to filibuster. Or maybe the filibuster entirely is inconsistent with this idea that Article 1 anticipates a functional Congress. And number two, the, the partisan gerrymandering on both sides uh, also makes Congress non-functional, dysfunctional. And so I, I'd like to see people who want, who, who say that, you know, Congress should address big policy questions. Those people also have responsibility uh, to um, to 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 make sure that Congress is not dysfunctional. Yeah, okay, but I'm not sure about that. I mean, I agree with you that um, it'd be good to be some, some to have some filibuster reform. I, I think actually the current version of the filibuster probably does actually make Congress's job harder than it, it should be. Um, but I mean, one person's um, Dysfunctional Congress is another person's, you know, slow and checked and balanced Congress. Right. And they'd say, well, yeah, the Congress is responsible for the major questions, but the Congress they're talking about is one in which it's very hard to pass legislation. Um, I, I don't, I, you could argue those things are intention. I don't think that the, that the one necessarily follows from the other. Um, I think it all comes down to how much uh, legislation one thinks Congress should be producing and how quickly. So it's a great question. It actually ties into this to another article and a book project I'm working on. On uh, the book is currently titled "A Faithful President: The Founders Versus the Originalists." And one of and, and so it's lo- the one point about the book is is the problems with the unitary executive theory of indefeasible, unconditional presidential power because it just doesn't fit. I mean, that's a great, there's a great 20th century argument and a 21st century argument for presidential control, but it's just, it's just not in the sources from the 18th century. Okay. And then the other point here is about originalism and methodology. I say this as I, I identify as an originalist, but I also want to make sure that we have a, um, uh, 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 that we hold originalism to its methodological commitments of having evidence. Okay, so here's the point about original public meaning and the argument you were just making, Adam, about um, a kind of formalistic approach, right? Or, or, or saying, you know, th- um, uh, th- this 
idea of Congress, we need to have slow, deliberative process. And I think that's already built into the structure of the Constitution. So it turns out formalistic separation of powers is a modern approach. It, it, the in the 18th century, Madison, Hamilton, Locke. I mean, all the, the Montesquieu. If you if you understand um, uh, the if you when you follow how they thought about what the structure of the Constitution, it fit checks and balances much more than separation of powers. And those checks and balances have to be overlapping and functional. Their approach to mix their approach was not just separation of powers; it was a functional mixed system. Okay, so I'd say Adam. We already have the, the the Madison and the founders already designed the slowness and built it into the system by having bicameralism and two different ways of measuring that compromise that Virginia plan and the compromise that going back to APUS history or con law right those compromises already built in checks and balances to make legislating hard so first of all bicameralism and then presidential signing presentment slash veto um, that takes time so. Of, of course, the, the, um, the founders also let each house decide their own rules, which is why a filibuster can't happen. I'm making, I think, a mix of a constitutional argument and a policy argument. I don't think courts, I'm not saying, okay, I think courts can look into pretexts and faithful execution. I'm not suggesting that courts strike down the filibuster rule. Like that's, that is a, that is a classic political question in that it has been, that, that question has been committed to the Senate or to each house. But what I am saying is, this is a matter of political culture. And I think it, instead of this being constitutional design, I think there is a, in, it, I, I think on a certain level, it just becomes more of a libertarian commitment of wanting a less functional federal government, want, wanting dysfunction, um, rather than being true to the founding principles of Madison and Hamilton of wanting a functional national government. That, that's the best, the best historical explanation for why we had a 1787 convention was the recognition that we needed a stronger national government than the Articles of Confederation. And my question to libertarians is, uh, you know, this may be your ideological view, but is that a is that true to our national uh, legacy? Well, going back to the founding vision for Congress, they wanted deliberation, especially in the Senate. And so one could argue not for the paper filibuster, but a talking filibuster could prompt some engagement with ideas that might be steamrolled by a majority otherwise. I, I'm happy if, if, if we can agree, I'm perfectly happy to agree that the that the right answer in this conversation is to move is is to move back and see and, and you know I'm also you know I'm an originalist I'm also sort of a Burkean like I I I am uh, maybe a Burkean small C conservative in that I like incrementalism I, I I'm totally on board with that let's I think the big problem is that we have this this easy easy peasy paper filibuster where there's no you know there's no test of the commitment and and it and it doesn't reflect at least this deliberative idea that people should have to keep debating if they're right so if, if we can all sign on to that get rid of the paper filibuster and get back to the mr smith goes to washington talking filibuster then then let's try that and that, that actually might solve a lot of our problems 
This is a very ecumenical podcast. We're all we're all originalists. We're all purposivists. Purposivists. We're all Burkean. We're all we're all, Burkean, we're all we're all Federalists. We're all Republicans. Um, before we go, we should talk about um, we should talk about standing uh, because, of course, that was one of the other core piece, core aspects of the piece that you 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 presented at the roundtable and was published in the the Cato Journal. Could you just Let's return to that. What, where's your sense of how the court handed, handled the standing question for Missouri in the student loan case? And also, just as an observer of the court and litigation, where do you, where do you think state standing is headed? I mean, the Massachusetts versus EPA decision somewhat turbocharged it with that line about special solicitude. And we've seen really starting with the successful litigation against the Bush administration and Mass v. EPA, we've seen growing waves of state litigation um, from each administration to the next. So what's your reading of what the court did in the in the student loan case? And, and where is this trend headed? Yeah, great. Um, thank you for the invitation to talk about this, too, because um, I just I, I think this is a really uh, confusing part of the case and also a uh i I think a a good compromise i'm going to keep echoing the same point about you know being ecumenical or or incrementalist compromises i mean let me first acknowledge that it is legitimate to have limits on standing i mean i think both as a like where does standing come from the basic argument is that um is that first article three uh doesn't just give judicial power to do anything like advisory opinions there has to be a case or controversy, and it's not just any kind of controversy. Article three spells out three kinds of cases and six kinds of controversies that each turn on parties and disputes. So, so that's textual, and it's also a reflection of what judicial power meant in, in Article three. Um, and it also has some principles that we don't want judges sort of free range weighing in on, uh, on 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 generalized grievances and acting like a legislature. So that's all legitimate. But on the flip side, if if um, if, if some questions are about large constitutional principles, like the Establishment Clause, for example, um, or if it's about, I don't know, let's say emoluments on the other side, I, I was just pausing, I was, you know, during the Trump administration, I uh, led a, a group of historians writing amicus briefs on the meaning of emolument. We were undefeated on the question, on the substantive question of what does an emolument mean, but that's because we often never got into the game. Um, because many judges ruled that no one had standing. And if no one has standing, then the Constitution is just, you know, parchment. Um, and many clauses would be parchment if no one can litigate generalized principle commitments, like separation of powers. Okay. So, um, so how do you strike the balance there? Um, so that you don't have, if you have 330 million Americans, should we have 330 million plaintiffs? Ah, here's a solution about that problem of too many plaintiffs with too many uh, uh, loose um, uh, and not enough resources. That's also standing wants people with skin in the game. The solution is state standing, because then instead of 300, plaint- 300 million plaintiffs, well, you have an institutional plaintiff with a with a with with a background. This is the background of state sovereignty. State, state standing is states are sovereigns within sovereigns, right? Um, uh, they maintain their their sovereign legal status, and they aggregate citizens' concerns in an institutional way with sufficient resources to litigate. Right, and that, and that checks the boxes. Now, I'm not saying that there should be states automatically get standing to do anything. I don't I don't know that I have, I have that commitment, but um, 
Um, it seems to me that there is also a conservative or libertarian argument for your listeners in favor of state standing. Um, and I've actually heard many conservatives, um, you know, I think conservatives are very split on this. And I think it's a split between this concern about judicial economy, right? Wanting judges to not weigh in on social issues and, and, and concerns about judicial power. Um, skepticism about judges, often elite judges, um, sk- keeping them uh, 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 to one side. On the other hand, I think a lot of libertarians and conservatives and progressives and liberals um, want the Constitution not to be a dead letter. Right. And want, so there are many cases where, you know, you need someone to vindicate something. This is that case. So the Biden versus Nebraska, let me just identify the problem quickly. Um, uh, let's grant that there was a, a substantive problem here that the Biden administration did not have uh, congressional authorization to do what it did. And it was spending something like, I don't know, estimates were that this program would cost upwards of like $600 billion. That's like, you know, you, 100 billion here and 100 billion there, and suddenly we're talking about real dollars, right? Like that's, okay, so is that just like, should should that just be non-justiciable? Uh, uh, or, or should, or should um, the Constitution have its day in court? Well, the problem was, it was, um, there are lots of ways that the Biden administration tried to have bad faith loopholes to dodge litigation. It, it tried to design the program of waiver that it was only the government, uh, that, that no, there'd be no bank or um, no entity with any um, specific injury. And um, and they deliberately tried to circumvent standing, even in the, uh, in the ways that they sort of changed the program midstream. So that was also indications of, 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 of pretextual bad faith. So how did, so in, but then the Supreme Court had to get to this conclusion to find standing and they couldn't actually say what they did. Right. And I, I can explain why. Right. Um, but basically, um, the only way that Missouri had a claim of standing was that this other entity that was an independently created state corporation insulated from Missouri, that corporation could arguably be hurt by this waiver. But there was no clear connection between that independent agency being financially separate from the state and sort of rising and uh, rising and falling on its own finances with no liability of the state to it. Um, so how would Missouri have standing? Missouri wasn't going to be injured by this agency, by its Mohella agency being hurt. So the only way that they were able to cobble it together is by saying, you know, um, that Missourians would be hurt. Well, I'm sorry, that's actually not going to work under traditional standing rules, right? Um, if a thousand Missourians had walked into court, they would have said none, none of you as individual plaintiffs have an injury, but somehow Missouri did. Well, why would Missouri have an injury if a million Missourians did not? It's because Missouri was there as a state. That, that was the special solicitude for state standing. But Roberts wouldn't say so. Why? Because the the conservatives are split on this question. In a case that had just been decided a week or two earlier in U.S. versus Texas, the this fight over special states special solicitude spilled on the pages. Alito endorsed it in favor of Texas, and Gorsuch, Thomas, and Barrett rejected it in 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 a case they were deciding at the same time. And they're running out of time. They basically just made up standing in the case without saying their explanation. I think the, the even though they even though Roberts dodged this question, the only way to understand how Missouri had standing is because it had a more special stand, status as a state relative to a bunch of Missourians who could have raised the same point.
And this is a good thing. Like state standing, if you care about the Constitution being vindicated and protected and not just being a parchment paper, you know, uh, dead letter, then you want states to be able to have some special status in being able to present constitutional arguments in courts. Well, speaking of running out of time, we promised you that we'd only keep you an hour. And listeners should know you go into much detail about standing in all of the different arguments from the other cases that you just previewed here, and they should go read them. But you ended the article saying, you quoted Shakespeare, saying that the term ended with sound and fury, but signifying what exactly? And so my last question for you is whether you have any more clarity about what the last term meant based on some of the arguments that have come out since. Well, one reason why I was why I was sort of paraphrasing Shakespeare and Faulkner there about sound and fury was that um, Roberts and Justice Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kagan had a pretty fiery set of exchanges in that last decision in Biden versus Nebraska, and a lot happened in that term on affirmative action, and soon after Roe v. Wade being overturned in Dobbs, and and I don't think it was just that case, but I was troubled that you know the the two uh, talking about you know faithful execution and a duty of good faith it seemed that both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kagan were accusing you know, each side was like sort of implying the other side was acting in bad faith, and and I, I think I. I wanted to end my, you know, this uh, in the Cato Supreme Court review. I wanted to sort of end with a with a point about um, uh, my concern about the rule of law in the courts and what's happening, and and, and and observing that both sides are engaging in a problematic set of discourse about assuming bad faith. Um, I was uh, essentially what Kagan was doing in in that part of the decision. Uh, she's saying that you know they, that they were just making it up and uh, that the, that the Roberts court itself, that the majority had violated the constitution. And I thought that was troubling given that there was a clear argument for what they were doing behind the scenes and, you know, uh, which was state standing and, 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 um, and Robert seemed open to it. So it's, so, uh, so part of what I'm saying is that that sound and fury was troubling, but I'm also saying that the court has a duty to say what it's doing. And um, so it's not sound and fury, sound and fury signifying nothing. I think it's sound and fury and without without clear answers. And so um, the so they were they were dodging too much. Um, they uh, on the substantive question, the major question doctrine, just come out and admit it that it's substantive. It's a substantive canon, and tell us that you're committed to the non delegation doctrine, and then there, it becomes predictable and reliable as the rule of law demands. I don't think people reading the substantive part of that decision have clarity about what the major question doctrine is. I wrote the article to try and give some clarity, despite you know how Barrett was trying to you know how, how, Barrett, how Barrett was doing a a, a confusing job or um, a, a, an ideological commitment to textualism. Let's just be honest: the Roberts Court is purposivist. and it's committed to a substantive canon of non-delegation. That's point number one. And point number two is. Instead of just having the state standing as the only explanation sub silentio, like uh, the only uh, ha- having to try and uh, figure it out, and just you know take the time and uh, a- and 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 clarify for us as the public, because that's the duty for courts and the rule of law is to is to have is to give reasons, and if you can't give reasons, then you're not faithfully executing your job as justices. Uh, um, so that was my critique at the end. 
Well, Jed, maybe somebody who likes the the Roberts Court's decisions a little bit more will end their article with another line from Shakespeare: uh, "All's well that ends well." Uh, <laughs> but that goes that goes not just for um for for one's view of those decisions, but also the podcast. Thanks again so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for your great questions. I really appreciated the, the really uh, insightful questions and conversation. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Adlaw Center. <laughs>